the universe exists very much like Birmingham City Centre in a, a state of constant regeneration. You're welcome to your pick, but you'll lose. Let's just vote on Yeah, it. we'll put it to the vote. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the leopard. Welcome to Beware of the Leopard, a rather pedestrian work covering the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm Mark Stedman, and I do love a novelty ringtone. I'm John Hickman, and what I need is a strong drink and a peer group. I'm John Bounds, and I'd far rather be happy than right any day. Before we crack open the book, we've got a couple of items of feedback to get to. Firstly, thanks for the tweets and the emails. Do keep them coming. You can find us on Twitter at BTL Podcast, like Kerry Davis did. He writes for the Archers, you know, and uh, he called us informed and entertaining. That sounds like five stars to me, although it probably reads like a four. That's an Edinburgh joke. Um, you can also email us feedback at btlpodcast.com like Steve Quirk did. Uh, Steve suggested James Acaster as a possible Arthur, and I have a note to tell Bounder he looks like a younger Jarvis Cocker. Do you approve, Bounder? Um, well, the uh, I'm res- I resent the implication that I'm not aware of uh, modern... Uh you know, the modern culture things. I've seen James Acaster live a couple of times. He's a very uh, amusing stand-up comedian. It's not quite my idea of an Arthur, but uh, I like his jokes. Like his, I like a cut of his jib. Is he one of the ones that does one-liners? Because that's what they do up in the Edinburgh, don't I they? don't think he is. He's more of a sort of, um, how, how would you describe him? I mean, uh, yeah, so Stephen describes him as a young, uh, looking like a youngest Jarvis Cocker. I would describe him as, um, yeah, that's his look. He's a little bit sort of, um, he digresses. Uh, yeah, that that would be a, a good way. So sort of, um, there's a lot of these, these young comedians owe a lot of um, debt to uh, Ronnie Corbett's producer's chair stuff, I think. So, to business and an enhancement designed to make your life as difficult as possible. Artificial disabilities, see also pseudo-fractures, impair you, making it harder to achieve certain life-fulfilling goals, thus making it all the more impressive when you actually achieve them. We only ever encounter them in the second radio series when Arthur meets Lintella, which, of course, he never does in the books. So, Mr. Bounds, what do you think the market will be for artificial disabilities in the future? And, secondly, why do you think this concept never made it into the books? So, I think... These two questions are tied into each other. I mean, deliberately by you, of course, but also they're tied into each other because the reason it never made it into the books, I think, is because it's one of the most straightest pieces of satire that uh, Douglas does at any point. And um, it's, yeah, it's it's even more satirically valid in this day and age because this is the stuff of the X Factor origin story. <laughs> This is the, this is the this is the poorly grandmother that they're doing it for. This is the uh, I had a terrible time. I was bullied at school. This is the um, oh I don't know. I had a I had a I don't I, had a, I don't know. I had three nipples and no one really knew, but it plagued me. There's a there's a, a yeah a particularly barbed line um, that is uh, that is delivered in the uh, in the radio show that uh, goes something along the lines of, and when all the programmes on all the channels actually were made by actors with cleft palates speaking lines by dyslexic writers filmed by blind cameramen, instead of merely seeming like that, it somehow made the whole thing more worthwhile. But that, no, but well, that, in general, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? Because, you know, there is obviously underrepresentation in the media of people who are really bad at media, apart from uh, Guardian comment writers. <laughs> but this is really good news for all of those people who... Um, 
have lots and lots of privilege and come out asking when it's going to be their day, when there's a day of action for someone. <laughs> so, you know, essentially you, you, you could have yourself genetically modified into whichever um, whichever less privileged group you like so that apparently you can get, um, you know, to the front of the queue because of that skewed logic that those people have. So it would be popular. That's a brilliantly, brilliantly horrible thought. It's essentially what John's done, though, by moving to Birmingham and getting himself a Birmingham accent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, None of my friends would have had me on an internet radio show before that. Um, very good. Right. Well, um, and now it's time to get Norse. Asgard is the land of Norse mythology and the homeworld of Thor the Thunder God, who is not, in Adam's incarnation, played by a blonde sex beast. There's a lot more about Asgard in the sixth book, which we'll come to in a minute, but gods are an area Adams touches on occasionally. So I wondered, Mr. Hickman, what your thoughts were what your thoughts were also on how this crosses over into Pratchett territory. Yeah, we keep coming back to Pratchett as we as we go through this, I think probably because of the fact that, as we've talked about before, um, Adams kind of opened a door for maybe some other writers who would have got through and, and Pratchett's world is much, much more God heavy, but that's probably because of the the fantasy setting um, that that it finds its, itself in. The gods in Pratchett are really, really interesting, and they're really integral to everything that goes on. Even though their supposedly um, omnipotent agency isn't really very effective most of the time, I wouldn't say. What do you think? Yeah, I was going to say they they are they seem a lot more fallible than um, than than most gods, uh, and uh, yeah, just just more flawed in general. Whereas certainly Thor and the likes of uh, Zarquan in uh, Adams' universe are very genuinely powerful. Oh, apart from. Um, uh, Rob McKenna, the rain god, who is who doesn't have any agency, uh, partly possibly because he doesn't know he's a rain god. So, t- so um, Terry Pratchett. Then I must admit, I've uh, never read a Terry Pratchett book, <laughs> but I've got an opinion. Is that, no, 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 no. But I, I just thought it was an interesting aside that the only person I ever really knew that was um, was into Terry Pratchett when I was young was a guy called James Grimmith. He was a he's a lovely chap. Uh, he was when I was a kid, anyway. But he was also. Um, you know, you do at school, you do a book review. He reviewed um, uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish as a book review at school. In a, I think maybe we were in fourth year. And because I used to get my books from the library and there was no no media about these books that have reached me at all. So I'd read the first three Hitchhiker's books, but I had no idea there was a fourth until he'd started uh, reading about it. I'm going, oh, God, not only, it was, I'm so bloody excited about it. So it's bloody excited that it was another one. So excited to find out all about the stuff, but also going, stop spoiling it for me. And also, <laughs> I've got no, how am I going to get this? Have they got this at um, Tower Hill Library? I don't know. Oh, God, yeah. And the, the, you didn't even have the language back then to, to you know, say spoiler alert, because it, it didn't exist then. You just had to be frustrated. As I mentioned earlier, the sixth book of the Hitchhikers series is written by Owen Colfer. Uh, It's called And Another Thing, and we don't include it in our main discussions purely because it wasn't written by Adams himself. But it's a good addition to the story, and arguably better than certainly one or two of the latter Adams works. Hmm. Uh, The lovely thing about it is that the audiobook is read by Simon Jones, who played Arthur in the radio series. 
Uh, if you'd like to give this a try, you can pick it up from Audible for free and get a 30-day free trial of their amazing audiobook service, which includes over 180,000 titles by going to audibletrial.com slash leopard. When you sign up for their service, you can also enjoy their great listen guarantee. That's my ad voice. So if there's ever a book that you don't love, you can swap it for another one. No questions asked. So if you haven't heard the sixth book in the trilogy, do go and get it in your life by going to audibletrial.com slash leopard. And with that, we've finished with the A's. So before we continue, you'll just need this fish in your ear. The babelfish feeds on brainwave energy, converting the unconscious frequencies in any language into recognisable speech in the owner's own tongue. It has been cited as clinching proof of the non-existence of God because it proves he exists, which by way of faith-powered existence proves that he doesn't. Uh, QED. Bounder, how well do you think this argument actually stacks up? I don't believe necessarily that there is God, but I also believe that it absolutely doesn't matter because if people believe there is God, for them there is a God, so for those people at least that God exists. So if there are a mass of people that believe in a particular belief system, that God exists to all intents and purposes anyway. So uh, you know how uh, Carl Jung talked about uh, synchronicity? So if so, everybody believes these things, that happens. So if all gods are an illusion, it's up to you to decide whether or not gods exist. Um, so if Yahweh exists... Um, then he exists. But you could, um, you could, as the Discordians do, decide that um, Eris, the god of um, chaos, exists. And as long as you believe that she does, that's fine. So the Babelfish argument is a, a is, is not an unusual philosophical argument, um, but a very good one. But the Babelfish is so fascinating because it talks not to the idea of gods necessarily but to the idea of intelligent design so if you talk about the tower of babel as an idea and you go okay you've got to um uh god was peed off with everybody uh attempting to find out whether or not he exists so what we'll do we'll split everybody in we'll never be able to understand each other um, the Tower of Babel idea. So the idea that this idea of this fish that would then create that, would that create more problems than it solved? It's fascinating. I bloody love it. This is the number one um, philosophical uh, idea in the entire five, six book trilogy plus associated uh, multimedia um, tributes. And your your points just there speak back to the previous discussion we had about... Um, gods in in discworld actually in a really interesting way and as someone who hasn't read discworld um i'm gonna i'm gonna invite you to read one and i'm gonna suggest you read if nothing else from the pratchett uh from pratchett's whole works you try and read small gods so when arthur comes home in book four he plops his little babelfish into a bowl and my question for you then mr mr h is how do you reckon the fish survives right so Here's the thing. Uh, you can't hibernate a fish. Okay. Anybody want to know? Anybody? Anybody got a reason why? <laughs> you, Anyone? We can tell you're a university lecturer, John. Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> Go on, just spit it out. Man. Hi, hi, hibernation is a, is a warm-blooded animal's thing, right? So you, you lower your... You lower your body temperature until you're essentially putting yourself into, into a stasis. So a fish can't do that because it's already cold-blooded. 
but fish can go dormant. Um, and the most notable example of this is the epaulette shark. You can um, starve an epaulette shark of oxygen and they'll appear dead and then they'll come back to life as soon as you put them into favourable conditions, which would be like the sea, um, obviously. Um, other fish can do it in freezing water, but the epaulette shark can do it at up to 26 degrees Celsius, uh, which means you can actually beach an epaulette shark and it could just sit there all day in the sun baking and then the sea will come back up and you'll go yeah i'm fine and 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 off i go so i would say that the bait fish could probably go dormant in this way while it's in the tank and that would that would be okay but um if you do uh like put the tv on put the radio on to just kind of feed it some sort of energy while you're going on remember that you can overfeed your bait fish so perhaps you wouldn't want to put uh, a very noisy <laughs> channel. On, I'd say just a bit of bit of radio four would be fine. Because essentially, Arthur just drops a little one of one of those uh, "I'm going away" blocks in. That's just a, yeah, just a, a big load of brainwave matter. Do you think a babelfish is something is the galactic equivalent of a prize at a fun fair that you would get in a plastic bag with a bit of water and some brainwave energy to take home? And on the galactic scale, is that something that's ever happened? Or has it only ever happened in the Beano? <laughs> I've done it. I, that's genuinely happened. So, uh, what? You've really I've, won the goldfish? I've, I've, yeah, I've won the goldfish at a fair. Yeah, brought it home. It, 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 Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most aggressive reaction I've ever heard from someone that, winning yeah, a prize that, at a fair. That all the time in the 70s and 80s. You weren't born that far into the 70s, so it's mostly the 80s. The interesting thing, actually, about the bowfish, so when they first get the bowfish, is it comes, it just comes out of a dispensing machine. Yes. What do you get out of a dispensing machine for free? Nothing. Well, how have they how have they got it out of the dispensing machine? It's taken some sort of identification. He's thumbed something, isn't it? I don't know. They're so free and easy. that I mean, I and actually, the economic model of the universe in The Hitchhiker's Guide is completely misunderstandable it's broken it doesn't work in all sorts of ways it's more broken than the uh the model of time or reality to be perfectly honest so are you saying a babel fish is like um a water dispenser type product where you can just just get it or perhaps it's like when i went to get my tires done the other day um it's there's a coffee machine here and I can get some coffee. But not very good coffee. Because I'm buying ancillary services at the time. I was going to say it's more like Allen keys. Allen keys? Yeah. Oh, you know, free. yeah, you, you just, you get stuff. Like they're so sort of, they're so useful and so plentiful that they just tend to chuck in a few extra, uh, you know. So Douglas Adams would definitely have written something about the Allen key by now because he'd have done a few flat packs and it would be like the biros all over yeah, again, wouldn't uh, it? Yeah. There's a planet of the Allen keys. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on. Um, from fish, we move to the feds. Bang Bang and Shooty aren't just any dumb two-bit trigger-pumping morons with low hairlines, little piggy eyes and no conversation. They're a couple of intelligent, caring guys that you'd probably quite like if you met them socially. We meet them on Magrathea as our heroes try and escape the mice. As they're clearly based on some kind of American cop stereotype or archetype, Mr. H, do you think Adams was much of a viewer of 70s TV cop dramas as, for example, perhaps Bounder is? Almost inevitably, he was. Um, You've got to think about the, the, the context in terms of what would have been on television at the time and how much television you could access and videotapes, et cetera, et cetera. There was nothing else to watch. Exactly. Three channels, that was it. So he's, he's, he's writing this at a time where there's very little uh, television 
available. We, we need to recognize that and where a, a fixed schedule was, was a thing. Um, and where these sorts of shows were very, very popular. So you look at, um, the Sweeney starting, um, a few years before Hitchhikers, uh, existed in the public consciousness, but presumably he was writing it at that time as Hitchhikers is developing. The professionals is coming out. I assume, I'm not sure when Starsky and Hutch was aired in the UK because obviously professionals and Sweeney were mirroring a lot of that, particularly professionals. Um, but some of those American imports would be coming in. So yeah, across three channels of access, he's definitely seen a lot of those things and he's definitely projecting some of that popular culture into what he's doing here. Um, one of the things that's in terms of this kind of buddy cop thing, that is a specific moment in time, really. So um, I'm a podcaster, but that's not my real job. My real job is being a university lecturer, just like you. Um, <laughs> it's a Rosie and Jim joke. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, I'm so, disappointed I got that. But well, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people won't. Um, so in within within media studies, which is obviously my my area of work, there's a lot of people who've written a lot of stuff about uh, cop drama as a, as, as a as a genre, and essentially there's a lot of people who've looked at it as being um, mirroring uh, social concerns back into the the the, the genre um, and and its particular tropes. So you have particular phases. So he's very very much locked into that particular phase with this with this particular point here. Um, and, and if you haven't got the time to do media studies, all you need to do is watch the comic strip, strip presents detectives on the edge of a nervous breakdown and you'll get what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> John's immediately picked up on what I'm talking about. This is, a, this is a program in which a series of television crimes are done in a television style and they have to bring in all the different TV cops from the ages to try and solve it. <laughs> And each different generation has very different methods, and it is one of the best thirty minutes of your life. There's a thing about double acts, uh, I think, in especially in the first couple of books. You got Bang Bang and Shooter, you got the two philosophers, and then the two programmers and their ancestors. And most of the time, characters are paired up. Um, but is that just a radio convention so that one character has another one to speak to instead of like having to speak to the listener? Or does Adams just like pairing it's everything, off? isn't it? Apart from it's everything you don't need to do it in books, but everything else needs to do it. Radio Four has a lot of experience doing this because obviously they adapt a lot of work and they they can do it with varying degrees of success. I think when they did book three, they didn't do a bad job. Actually, I think they did a pretty decent job of when um, Arthur gets diverted to Agrajag's uh, Cathedral of Hate. Three green dots. A name for that. Irritating. Oh, and a comma. You have been diverted. Dot a top comma. Well, not entertainingly. That's my name. Over the past few weeks, we've been putting together the cast of a hypothetical rebooted Netflix series of The Hitchhiker's Guide. We've filled Arthur and Ford's seats, so why don't we take a look at Zaphod? Gents, who do you think would make a good, bingeable, two-headed narcissist? Okay, so two questions that I'm going to ask before we start doing this. <laughs> okay. Number, number one, 
do we have to stick in the age range of the characters we've already selected? Uh, because actually, if I was genuinely casting a Netflix series, I'd have gone way younger. But number two, is there any particular reason I can't cast two people? I think um, y- yes and no. So yes, I, I the, no, hang on. No, it might be no to both questions. I might have got lost in the double negatives. Um, I don't think you have to stick with an age range, especially with Zaphod. I think he can be... Because he's so Zaphod, I think he can be almost any age. And B, I really like the idea of it being played by two people. Very much so. Um, okay, so assuming, I was assuming that you guys say yes, number one. <laughs> Noel Fielding and Serge from Kasabian. <laughs> because they they are essentially the same person, but one doesn't say so anything. The twist is Noel Fielding doesn't talk. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's just that's just everybody's dream. Um, yeah, that would be beautiful. Okay, okay. Well, just to go with the Bake Off host, then uh, Noel and Sandy Toxfig. So I, I've, um, I'm going to take a, a slightly different direction, but I'm going to need you, you guys, to help me with this. Which is that um, I've been thinking about Zayford as a straight man, and to to get him to play himself entirely seriously and to to be not a joke character so that he completely takes himself seriously and cool um and that the the joke is that he will stand in that space and look ridiculous because he's being so serious so who could we get that could that could land that for us julian cope and i think i think fielding fits into that space um, Jonathan Ross. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, if we if we have James Acaster as Arthur and Jonathan Ross, we're just going to have the entire. It's going to be like the the artificial disabilities thing. We're just going to have a bunch of uh, of actors with speech impediments, <laughs> and it'll be great. <laughs> I think I'd know to be perfectly honest. If Zayfight has got to be cool, Zayfight in this day and age would not be a white man. Zayfight in this day and age would be something. Very, very, very different, very alien to the modern uh, and very alien to the, the tastes of the conventional. So we're, we're probably talking um, someone transgender, someone or someone who's completely alien to us. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, Riz Ahmed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I've, I've still got no idea who he is. No, but, uh, I'll go for it. Well, let's stick him in the vote. But um, I was I was warming up. To probably saying that um, I don't know, uh, Caitlyn Jenner or uh, Chelsea Manning or some other famous transsexual. I really like the idea of um, when I was when I was thinking about this earlier. I don't have a, a, an actual name, but I really like the idea of it just being a musician. Like you, I mean, you said Serge. I think casting someone who's absolutely not well known for being an actor. I think had um, Jared. Let, let Leto, yeah, yeah, him. J- Jared, Jared Leto, Leto. Has he not already done the things um, that he's already done? He probably would have been quite an interesting one to cast. Okay, so you put your man from the White Stripes in. No, Bowie. You should cast Bowie. I mean, he's dead now, but like. Okay, so 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 I've got I've got a couple of questions for you. How cool actually is Zaphod? He's as cool as Danny. Oh. Oh, that's a that's a that could be a dagger to the heart, or uh, a, a very good. It's a, it's a completely open question. It's a, a complete. That's why I'm asking. It's a completely open question. Yeah. Do you see? Do you see him as being someone who who thinks that he is cool, or do you see him as someone who is effortlessly cool? So uh, I think he's. I think it's someone who's just that notch 
less cool than he actually thinks he is. Mm-hmm. But by by definition of be of acting as cool as you know how that thing. But you know how you, you uh, dress for the job you want. Um, mm-hmm. He dresses for the job of being incredibly cool, yeah, and isn't quite, but mm-hmm. you know, almost manages. He's kind of patently not cool, but very much presents. He identifies, he identifies as, cool, as cool, but he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But he doesn't. He doesn't present. He doesn't pass as cool. Oh, blimey! That well, I don't know. Um, so, in terms of like Hollywood actors or something, well, why don't we just give it to Tom Cruise? <laughs> Yeah, he did a job. Well, this, I was, I was, I, no, I was genuinely thinking, um, your Johnny Depp's, your Brad Pitt's, right? They are kind of, they are blandly cool, <laughs> and they have very recently disappeared beyond the event horizon, where they are certainly not cool. Mm. They are, they are, they are not, they are not, they are not role models. They are not cool people. They have become unattractive men as well, <laughs> and and the idea of a Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp, double-headed, Kamira, Zephyr Beeblebrox, <laughs> trying desperately to cling to the last of his youth and being attached to our who's our who's our who's our Ford now? Michael Sheen, I think. My, Michael Sheen and Simon Pegg are objectively cooler than either of those two men. <laughs> and so the idea that they'd be there in their leather jackets with their two heads um, going, come on, let's, <laughs> let's have a beer. Come on, lads. You know, oh, let's have a gargle blaster. <clears throat> that is genius casting. So my pick now is Brad Pitt with um, with Johnny Depp. So if I'm going to follow that to his logical conclusion. I want... Um... I want Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. <laughs> but they're, 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 too, they're too actually cool, though. Oh, yeah, but you get, a, I don't know, I think you get a lot. Of you're welcome to your pick, but you'll lose. I just, just vote on it. Yeah, we'll put it to the vote. Um, uh, we'll, we'll put all of those into a poll, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out somehow. Uh, if you want to cast your vote, then you can head over to btlpodcast.com. Look for the poll, vote early, and vote often. Uh, and now, we're about to make the jump into hyperspace. Like some of the places we've already discussed, Barnard's star is real. In the Hitchhiker's universe, it's a sort of hyperspace junction. Bounder, do you think any planet in the constellation of Ophiuchus would have been destroyed to make way for it? Well, you've got to build bypasses. <laughs> but also, <laughs> yes, it could be because the universe exists very much like Birmingham City Centre in a, a state of constant <laughs> regeneration. <laughs> Things have to be knocked down for no other reason than things have to be knocked down. Uh, yes, uh, you, you can't stand in the way of progress, even if, if it is overrated. All English, at least, town centres exist to be like a 3D moving Escher painting, so you can't possibly know what was there a moment before. <laughs> Levels are all fucking weird, <laughs> and there's a mad Dutchman uh, controlling your thoughts. Um but yeah, of course, if anything exists, something was there before, even if it was only a pitch of grass or a, a cow or uh, or an essence of nothing or at least a bit of solitude or something. If something exists, if Barnard Star's hyperspace junction was there, yeah, I felt like, yeah, there was something there before. Even the vacuum of spaces. Well, it's not just the, um, the planets uh, or, or the star itself, but all of the, you know, if it's a big hyperspace express route, then... Presumably, there are a bunch of lanes, and there it being a junction, then there are at least four intersect, you know, four lanes intersecting uh, into one, which means there is a huge swath of planets that would either have, have I mean, 
the thing is, given given the way that these things work, could you not just move the planets? I mean, space, as we know, is big, really big. <laughs> so could they not have just like moved the Earth? to make way for the hyperspace bypass. I mean, yes, it would have thrown off some some orbits and our days, you know, we probably would have got an extra Tuesday or something. <laughs> but surely that could have been a possibility. I mean, why why do we have to have so much destruction? Well, the, 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 okay, this is a callback. But the if the doctors have sold death, and if you can move planets, and if you can do all of this stuff, so if you've solved death, um, all the planets would be bloody full. Yes. Right. So... We need something else, perhaps, to um, create room, make room, make room in the universe. <laughs> and um, maybe town planning is it. That could be the industry to get into. That could be the, you know, um, in 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 a million years' time, parents of nebbishy children can, you know, bring their kids up to be town planners rather than doctors or lawyers. Well... It's the growth industry. We, it's, it, that, um, I mean, the whole the whole premise of the universe is based on the idea that you can um, attempt to build through uh, an entire civilization. Planet. Yeah, civilization, and that's uh, so. I, I I don't believe Earth was the first, and I don't believe Earth mm -hmm. will be the last. It, that would be no. That, Earth wasn't even the last of Earth. <laughs> that would well. That would no. That would be that weird bit of sort of. Um, like not heliocentrism, but the idea that the world uh, revolves around you, as it were. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, so the idea that the Earth is the only thing that got, uh, gets demolished is bollocks. There's there's a thousand of these stories going on, and the people in this uh, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it. The people in their other star systems are going all. They've got their Fords, they've got their Zephyrs, they've got their um, Arthurs, and we're all heading to a monstrous destruction. Uh, now it's time uh, to lose our imaginations. The people of Bartledan accept the universe as is, never hoping, dreaming or wishing for anything. They don't breathe, but they do play netball, and all their books are exactly 100,000 words long because that's how long books are. I feel like I've met people like this before. Mr H, what about you? I think I would love the Bartledans. I genuinely think I, I, I would, and it's... It's because of the 100,000 words thing. <laughs> I love constrained fiction. And um, even though the, the, the Bolden literature that we come across is written as if it's unsatisfactory, I just think Arthur's... Yes, it's not constrained. <laughs> it just stops. I just don't think Arthur's a very good reader. <laughs> you've completely, you know, you've got completely um, got this wrong, right? Because the whole, uh, you know, it's a 100,000 word thing and nothing happens. And they play a lot of netball and stuff. We're essentially talking about modernist fiction. So um, this is, uh, these Bartledanians are Ulysses. They are, um, I don't know, they're Henry James Living. They are the New World Self novel. This <laughs> is modernist fiction shit, right? And yes, it's boring, but yeah, you but it's going to win the Booker Prize, and you better get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I could, de I would definitely read. I would definitely read it. I would, I, I would enjoy that. I would enjoy uh, the whole bit about um, working backwards to find out why the main character died. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's wonderful. Um, I'll, 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 I'll quickly, um, I'll skim through as much of this as, as I can, uh, quickly, uh, to, to catch you up to speak. Cause I don't expect you, dear listener, to have, uh, recently read, uh, this book. Um, but it's mentioned in uh, the the final book. Uh, Arthur has just read an entire book in which the main character had, over the course of a week, done some work in his garden, played a great deal of netball, helped mend a road, fathered child on his first uh, on his first wife. Sorry, on his wife, and then unexpectedly died of thirst just before the last chapter. In exasperation, Arthur had combed his way back through the book, and in the end, had found a passing reference to some problem with the plumbing <laughs> in chapter two, and that was it. So the guy dies. It just happens. It wasn't even the climax of the book because there wasn't one. The character died about a third of the way through the penultimate chapter of the book, and the rest of it was just more stuff about road mending. The book just finished dead at the one hundred thousandth word because that was how long books were on Bartledown. Well, it it, it seems this um, it's like a pastoral idyll of uh, a place, and it seems much more like a place that Arthur would think that he would uh, desire to be than where he ends up in uh, Lamirola. Yeah, and I think it's a shame that in in the in the book that preceded it we discover his romantic soul and i mean we we sort of we sort of know he has one from the very beginning because he fancies trillian um you know which which is a shame but in so i think we know that he has a soul and i guess that's the that's the problem he had with with bartledan we don't see him express it that often because he's usually just so dry and so very british about everything but he does have one and it it, it occasionally pops out from time to time and so i i can sort of i know what you mean but i think we, we we do find out he has a soul and so he would find bartledan to be unfulfilling bartledan is the idea that he would have you know, had it, had it been given the opportunity to wish for an ideal place, it's the sort of thing he might have come up with. Um, but it's not the sort of thing he needed. And you know what? This Baldan smacks totally of an Englishman moving to Los Angeles. Right. Everything's perfect, but there's nothing. There's nothing below the surface. No one's thinking anything. Mm. And uh, that is the end of this chapter. We hope to see you in the next one. Until then, Mr. Bounds, what will be occupying your time? Uh, my head's a complete mess at the moment. Um, just follow me on Twitter, man. You'll be all right. Uh, Outbounder. <laughs> oh, Outbounder. What about you, Mr. Hickman? I'm still doing the running podcast, and uh, most recently I've been talking about the fact that I nearly didn't even make it to the start of my marathon, <gasps> and then nearly didn't make it to the end of my marathon when I did make it to the start. So <laughs> if you follow at RunnerPod, you can hear all the drama, all the emotion on there. Um, yeah, I, I really put my emotions on tape, actually, the other day. I've never done that before. And that just about wraps it up for The Leopard. You can find the show at btlpodcast.com along with all of our contact details. Drop us an email to feedback at btlpodcast.com if you want to tell us something very sensitive and humane. And don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast app. Just search for Beware of the Leopard. Thanks again to Audible for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to pick up your free audiobook and start your 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash leopard. And if you have a moment, do please rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps people find the show and makes us feel like a Bartledanian who's just won at netball. Basically normal. We'll be back in a week or seven days, whichever comes sooner. So until then, share and enjoy.
so this is obviously sorry i've just made a <clears throat> said a bit of a technical boo-boo in the background here <clears throat> I'll, I'll come in as if you just said that question again all right <clears throat> 